Good morning, brothers and sisters. So my name is Jeremy Mayhew, and this is not a picture of my family up here. However, if you do a head count, um, you might see something in common with a real picture of my family. Um, There they are. So uh, that's my lovely wife, Mindy, and then my kids, Nate and Leela and Justin and CJ and Brianna and Karis and Zach and our two little dogs. And I'm a new elder here at Durwood. I'm also a longtime uh, youth ministry leader. I've been leading middle school ministry for a good long time. Uh-oh. Am I cutting out? All right. Um, and I have a little business to take care of today with uh, with God's word. So if you would turn with me to first Peter four, uh, this will be, uh, verses seven through 11. And, um, I'm going to be landing the plane today. We've been, uh, this summer talking about the one another's of scripture. Uh, there's a lot of them. We've only covered a fraction of them, but, um, you know, we've heard from Mike and from Justin and from Jeff and from Sam Last week we heard from Vinny and he upped the ante a little bit. He, he included a passage that had two one another's in it. Uh, so not to be outdone, I decided, you know, let's, let's go to three. So this passage has three one another's in it. Um, but in all seriousness, um, this is first Peter four, uh, verses seven through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength of that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is God's word. Would you join with me in prayer before I get started? Lord, thank you for, for this word. Thank you that, that you brought this to us uh, through your providential care that we have your word sitting in front of us right now. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I speak, uh, that you'd help each of us as we listen. And, and Lord, as, as we hear your word, I pray that you would change us, that you would help us to understand what marvelous things you have in store for us here before us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we look at this passage, there is a, there's a lot going on here, um, so, indeed, in the middle of it, there are three one another statements. Uh, and it's kind of sandwiched in between two things that maybe seems a little bit disjoint. Um, there's this thing right at the beginning, this statement, the end of all things is at hand. Whoa, right? That's, that's a big statement. That is a big statement. It's quite an opener. And, you know, maybe there's... there's uh, different things that you might might think of when you hear about the end is near. Um, 
you maybe you think about the strange guy down on a corner in DC with a sandwich board sign that reads the end is nigh or maybe you think about the big Oppenheimer bomb or maybe you think about rumors of wars and wars and rumors of wars or planes falling out of the air or giant planet killing asteroids or zombie apocalypses you know maybe evil dictators taking over the world people disappearing people flying around or maybe another attempt at a fourth indiana jones movie the end is near boo or maybe you think about it a little bit differently maybe you think about this with um kind of a version of of senioritis you know senioritis is when a like a high school seniors getting ready to graduate he's a couple weeks out grades are already in he knows he's going to graduate he's just kind of phoning it in those last two weeks are just nothing um we can have a christian version of this um jesus is coming back i just have to wait out the crazy until then i'm just a short timer biding my time until i can fly away okay so then after that there's this little bit about prayer now nothing can bring up guilt feelings in a christian like bringing up your prayer life so we've got a one-two punch here we've got scary and guilty right at the beginning and then a to-do list you know, three things to do three one another's three things to do to one another and then there's some kind of prayer because there's an amen at the end of it even though he keeps on going for a while afterwards um but what is this book peter getting at here why why the gloom and doom why these three things what is peter the man who wrote this trying to tell us um so in order to answer that, I want to pop back from the text for just a minute and, and give you all a couple of pieces of context, maybe a couple of things that can help us to understand a little bit better what this is about, why this is here. So the first thing that I would like to bring up is this idea of the kingdom of God. We sang about it this morning, um, but maybe that's a fuzzy concept. Uh, it's a very prominent concept in scripture. As a matter of fact, the whole Bible can be seen as a narrative. That is a story. And this story, let's call it the story of God, has a beginning, has a middle, and it has an end. And the story of God has a whole bunch of overarching themes. One of the main themes that, that stretches throughout the entire Bible from beginning to end is this idea of the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus, when he was introducing his ministry on earth, used this terminology. In Mark 1.15, Jesus introduces his ministry like this. The time is fulfilled... And the kingdom of God is at hand. Does that sound familiar? A little bit, maybe rhymes a little bit with, with what we read in First Peter? Repent and believe the gospel. 
Now, I could spend a lot of time, because there's a lot of it in Scripture, developing this idea of the kingdom of God. But I want to give you in a nutshell what I mean when I say the kingdom of God. So, a kingdom requires a king. And a king who rules with power over a people in a particular place. So if you have a king who has no power, you have no kingdom. If you have a king who has no people, you have no kingdom. If you have a king who has no place that he rules over, you have no kingdom. So the kingdom of God can be said like this. It is God's power over God's people in God's place. So if you put a pin in that. We're going to keep that, these three things, people, power, place. And we're going to hold on to that for just a minute. I want to talk about one other piece of context to help us understand. So this letter, First Peter, and it was written by a man named Simon Barjona, also known as Peter the Apostle. Now, Peter was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he was one of the fathers of the early church. Peter was one of the three men who was closest to Jesus during Jesus' ministry on earth. He was there with Jesus for three years, serving, watching, and hearing the gospel of the kingdom of God proclaimed. He was with him right to the end. Right before Jesus died, though, Peter denied Jesus three times. And then after Jesus died and returned to life, Jesus forgave Peter and restored him. And asked him to be a shepherd of his people. And he asked him three times to feed my sheep. So if we fast forward a few decades, this is where we find Peter. This is what Peter is doing. He is feeding Jesus' sheep. He's given his life and his ministry to proclaiming the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And that is what Peter is doing in this letter that we're reading right now. This passage that we read is from the middle of a letter that was written by Peter to Christians in Asia Minor. Now, these Christians were were suffering. They were having some hardships. And they were getting ready to have a whole heap more. And Peter was reminding them of their place in the story of God. Peter was reminding them that they are members of the kingdom of God, the new family that every disciple of Jesus Christ is a part of. Peter is helping them to understand their place in the story. He's preparing them to face suffering. He's preparing them to face hardship. And he wants them to embrace their true identity as God's people and place their hope in the future completion of the kingdom of God. So that is the context that we bring to this passage. 
So now as we turn our eyes to 1 Peter 4, I hope we can see it in a different light, with a different emphasis, maybe with more clarity. That this is not just a to-do list. There's something else going on here. So 1 Peter 4, 7 says the end of all things is at hand. But this is not a crazy town to be afraid of. This is more like if you go to the mall and you see a map and the map says you are here. This is Peter saying you are here. This is where you're at. This is where you're at in the story. You are here. And this is where he wants to draw these Christians' attention. Peter calls us to be seriously watchful and sober-minded. Pay attention to this. Look at this. Keep this kingdom reality in your mind so that you may pray and draw close to your king. And then we finally get to these three one-anothers. Now, I want you to see this, these three statements, these three one-anothers, as pictures of the kingdom of God. We see the people of the kingdom. We see the place of the kingdom. And we see the power of the kingdom at work. So if we take being a disciple of Jesus seriously, we want to understand this, the kingdom of God. We want to live in this as a, not as a mental exercise, but as a reality. And you see, Peter is doing just what Jesus told him to do, to feed my sheep. So for this group of believers in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, who were hurting and suffering persecution, and also for us, Peter is painting a picture of the kingdom of God. And this is what it looks like. In verse 8, the first one another. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, the kingdom of God is a people. And the implication from this passage is that the people of God have a tremendous capacity to sin against each other. As a matter of fact, there are a multitude of sins at play. Now, if, if you've been a part of a church for very long, you will know that this is a reality. We sin against each other. We hurt each other. We can be prideful. We can be arrogant. We can be selfish. We can be judgmental. We gossip. We insult. We argue. We compete. We get angry with each other. And what's more, we have a tendency to believe the wrong things. We have a tendency to embrace idols and look to false gods. We have a tendency to play at politics, to get tangled up in addictions, to get obsessed with being right. And Peter, you see, he calls us to love one another earnestly in the midst of all of this sin. Now, this is a radical 
furious kind of love that we see exemplified in Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for you and for me. The earnest love of Jesus for us is our model for loving each other. This is a love that will offend your sense of justice. This is a love that will cover over a multitude of sins. This is a love that does not require behavior modification. This is not, I love you if you just act the way that I want you to. There's a, a musician, a man by the name of Rich Mullins, who's uniquely suited in his music to talk about the, the, uh, the love of God. And we sing some of his songs sometimes here on Sunday morning, but this is what he had to say that I thought was really helpful. God has called us to be lovers, and we frequently think that he meant us to be saviors. So we love as long as we see results. We give of ourselves as long as our investments pay off, but if the ones we love do not respond, we tend to despair and blame ourselves and even resent those we pretend to love. Because we love someone, we want them to be free of addictions, of sin, of self, and that is as it should be. But it might be that our love for them and our desire for their well-being will not make them well. And if that is the case, their lack of response no more negates the reality of love than their quickness to respond would confirm it. So what Rich is saying is we don't love each other to get results. We don't love each other to get conformity. We love each other Because Jesus did. Even sinners. So the kingdom of God is a people who love each other in spite of the other person's sins and failures and unbelief. On the final night before his crucifixion, Jesus said this. A new commandment I give to you that you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus calls us, his disciples, to be a community that is known not by what we disapprove of or what we boycott or what political affiliation we have, but by our love for one another. And to be clear, this love does not silence us about sin. It does not make us soft on sin. But this is a love that is patient and kind. And it is a love that gives every person space to grow and to encounter the power of the Holy Spirit so that they may grow and move from unbelief to belief in every area of their lives. So a kingdom people who are marked by their love for one another. That's the first one. Now the second, show hospitality 
to one another without grumbling. Now, hospitality can be one of those Christianese sort of words. Unless you work in the hotel industry or something like that, it can have a, a, a light meaning, kind of like fellowship. You know, it's, it's, it's hospitality, fellowship. Um, and it can be minimized, especially if we separate it from the story of God. You might think of hospitality as, you know, having people over to your house for dinner or opening your house up for a meeting. Or maybe you think of it as, you know, a greeting on Sunday morning or um, having, having coffee service before the service. Um, these are all aspects of, of hospitality, hospitality, yes, but there's a bigger thing at hand here. Um, and we want to root our idea of hospitality where Peter does, in the kingdom of God. And so, presenting hospitality as a place in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a place, and where is that place? Is it, is it this building? Or is it somewhere else, like heaven or out there somewhere? Well, I think that this place is a little closer to home than that. When the scriptures speak of hospitality, they're literally speaking about showing love to strangers, taking people who are not your family in like their family. The story of God is a story about the creator of the universe condescending to his creatures and showing them their true home. In Psalm 68, it says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary into a home. So Jesus, in an act of cosmic hospitality, came to us to bring us to the kingdom of God. The kingdom is where Jesus is. And Jesus came here. Hospitality in the kingdom is inviting people to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of God like a taste of future glory now. Again, Jesus the night before, the night before his death, said, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So we, as disciples of Jesus, get to share in that kingdom. And we get to share it with others wherever we are. Hospitality is sharing of our lives and our abodes, extending our family from a tiny circle out to strangers. Finding more family where we go. And inviting them to the kingdom. And then experiencing the good things of the kingdom of God together with them. So what does this hospitality look like in, in practical terms? 
Well, practically speaking, 21 times a week, give or take, you eat a meal. Each time we sit down to eat a meal, that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to invite other people to a a kind of a private place of, of dining together, of eating together, of sharing a meal together. And it's an opportunity to make strangers into friends and friends into family. You see, we open up our private kingdom, our dinner table, our couch, our place, and we invite in outsiders. We inconvenience ourselves so that we can share the goodness of the kingdom with strangers as if they're family. Now, this kingdom hospitality, it breaks the back of our addiction to materialism and this consumerist sort of preserving of myself. Kingdom hospitality kills a lone ranger compartmentalized private solo spirituality and replaces it with the generosity of our king. The kingdom, this idea upended my shallow understanding of of hospitality uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, when the world was going, going crazy and everything was shutting down, my wife Mindy and I were having our idols challenged. Um, our idols of peace and quiet and convenience, very specifically. And as we were walking through this process, we desired to experience our home as an embassy of the kingdom of God. I was really convicted to let go of my idea that my home was my dominion, my own sanctum sanctorum. And then we started doing something that we called pandemic potlucks. So this was getting together in our front yard, in our backyard, and in in our house, and pretty much all over the place. Um, But we invited folks over for a meal. We sometimes had lunch, sometimes had dinner. We said, hey, bring something good to eat. We'll eat it. We'll bring something too. We'll fire up the grill. We'll put out some chairs. We'll put up some tables. We'll get some s'mores equipment together. We'll put up a volleyball net. We'll do the thing. Come on over. And it happened. Um, And in this time, this weird time, we discovered that this was something that was missing from our lives. It was missing from our lives. It wasn't there. This hospitality, this opening up of our home. A whole lot of y'all came over to our place during that time. Um, we, we had neighbors and friends over. We, had, we got back together with old friends. We made new friends. We had conversations. Uh, we ate really good food together. We got rained on together. Um, But so many good things came out of those relationships that grew during this time where everyone was shut down. We found that this was the opportunity we had to grow and to be challenged. And we learned a lot about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to show hospitality. 
So my front yard became an embassy of the kingdom of God. Then there's this third one another. In verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So this idea of spiritual gifts, this can be very, very introspective sort of navel gazing sort of thing. Um, and you may think of spiritual gifts as some sort of superpower, like you know, bending steel bars or jumping over tall buildings, or maybe something a little lamer than that, not something crazy, but you know, I have the superpower of being invisible, but only when nobody's looking. So you may ask then, what is my superpower? What makes me special? What is my gift? But Peter is reminding us of a different reality here. The Holy Spirit has come to each of us just like Jesus did, Jesus asked him to when he prayed right before he died, to come to us, to help us. And if you were a disciple of Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowers you with these beautiful, grace-filled gifts. You have words that people need to hear. You have skills and abilities and stories and personality and strength that will build people up. That will make them more than they were. And to enrich this kingdom. God has ordered his kingdom in such a way that his power flows to each of us who participate in the kingdom. And we are given gifts to build other people up. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. So this means that whether the grace gift is more visible like this Yahoo up here talking to you right now, or quieter and less visible, whether it is speaking or singing or encouraging or teaching or building or counting or sweating or listening or organizing or protecting or praying or cleaning or discerning or maintaining or proclaiming or reasoning or driving or hurting or holding or brewing or scheduling or waiting or visiting or rescuing or training or cooking. All of these gifts are supplied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are given these gifts as an opportunity to be stewards. That doesn't mean that we stingily measure out a little bit here, a little bit over there. It means that we get to give like there's no tomorrow because we know who is going to be filling up our reserves. We exhaust these gifts 
to serve others in the kingdom of God as an act of faith in our king who is supplying us with the power of his kingdom. So you see, Peter lays out these three one another's. And by extension, all of the one another's that we've talked about over the last few weeks. Not as a grocery list of good things to do. Not as a way to be a nice Christian. But as a picture of what it looks like to live in the reality of the kingdom of God. So Peter knows that this ragtag bunch of churches that he's addressing in his letter are about to face the full blunt force trauma of the Roman Empire. And he wants their eyes on the kingdom. So they, and we along with them, can be filled with hope and with joy in this kingdom. See, Jesus broke open the kingdom of God when he started his ministry on this earth. And we look forward to the day of Jesus' triumphant return when the kingdom is fully and finally expanded in a new heavens and a new earth brought together. And in the meantime, we find ourselves living where we plant our feet in the kingdom of God. But we're not just short timers. We're not just waiting it out for the clock to wind down so that we can tap out. We get to participate in the kingdom. We get to be the people of God's kingdom expanding the place of God's kingdom and experiencing the power of God's kingdom right here right now today and if we direct our gaze to this like Peter was asking these first century Christians to do if we look at this if we think about this if we desire this if we walk this out if we participate in the kingdom of God this changes everything Pray with me. Dear Jesus, may it be true of us, Lord, that we love each other earnestly. May it be true of us, Lord, that we show each other hospitality, that we treat strangers like their friends 
and friends like their family. And may we serve each other as stewards of your good grace. And Lord, may we do all of this so that in everything, everything, God may be glorified through you, Jesus. To you belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.